Hello and welcome to Close Reads. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And we are here to discuss Tess of the Durbervilles. Let me say that again. That's really hard to say, actually. Tess of the Durbervilles, <laughs> phase four. Uh, all the way through chapter 30. So if you're following along, that's until page 331. Um, So if you have noticed, I am not David Kern. Our fearless leader has been struck down by an illness. He is absent today. He's sick. He's not feeling very well. So uh, uh, Karen and I are going to talk about this section of wooing i guess is what it is a very complicated wooing uh so you'll get our perspective on that so before we begin karen how are you so far so good the allergies are kind of kicking my butt but um yeah yes (laughs) i understand (laughs) so you have transitioned from the academic year into the summer how does that change your life year by year what is your summer like well, this uh, this year is a little bit different because I actually had the first sabbatical of my life this spring <gasps> semester. So um, I did teach a course that's, you know, separate, sort of separate, but um, I've been working on my current book all semester. And so for me, I'm just like sliding in, I'm not slide. I'm just just that same, same thing. Still trying to work on this book and it's due at the end of the summer. So, okay. So you are, you are right in the thick of it. Right. Exactly. I'm going to throw a little important question in here. That is, that's something that I'm wrestling through and I'm, our listeners will probably be interested in this too. How, how do you manage writing and teaching? Are you like a one at a time kind of author and teacher and professor, or can you kind of balance both of those things? It's well, whether I can or not is a separate question of whether I must or not. Um, it is, it is, it is hard. Um, but most of what I write draws from what I teach. So I actually, even in teaching this class, um, that was an option for me because I am on sabbatical and I was asked if I wanted to teach this particular seminar that I could create. And so I created one that is, that is centered on what I'm writing about. So, Hmm. um, that, that helps. That helps to be able to talk in the classroom about the things that I'm thinking about um, for my book. And so um, that, you know, that that's the ideal, I guess. I think that's really wonderful. I'm trying to juggle both and it's hard. I'll tell you. It is hard. It is hard. It is overwhelming. I don't know why, because it seems like most people can do two things at once in life, but I, I don't know. So pray for me. Um, Okay. (laughs) I will um, as I pray for me. Indeed. (laughs) Okay. So into Tess of the Durbervilles, phase the fourth. Uh, Off the air, we were talking before we pushed record. And I was saying I had forgotten how long this section is. Uh, Mm. This is a chunk of their complicated wooing. Mm -hmm. Karen, why so much? Why, why go so deep here? Why does it take so long? Why is the concentrated attention on this section of the book? Hmm. Well, of course, some of the things that I would say are, are, will be spoilers, but I think it's important to note that there are seven phases in 
the novel. And so when we reach number um, four, if my math is correct, right, <laughs> um, we're in, you know, we're, we're sort of that we're in the middle of the book. So this middle phase is long. Um, we've been stopping and kind of each time talking about the, the title of the phase. It's called The Consequence. Uh, so it's the consequence of the rally, which is the consequence of the maiden no more, right? And um, we haven't even in today's reading reached, um, you know, the the consequence of the end of today's reading, which is Tess saying yes to Angel. Um, and so actually that, the what we'll find is that the center of the novel is the center of everything is the center is the literal center of the, of the pages and the center of the plot. Um, and it's everything that, that this is building toward. So it mm -hmm. is a long buildup, but we're, but it will occur in the middle. Um, and it all will matter, um, in how things turn out. Hmm. So, yeah, I was thinking as I was reading that there's, you know, and we'll talk more about this as we go today. There's two very distinct, uh, two very distinct things happening. There's what's going on with Angel and there's what's mm -hmm. going on with Tess. Yes. And one of the ways that this, the reading for today struck me is how very divergent those two experiences are and how it's just how much that I guess speaks to human relationships in some ways mm -hmm. that I may be having a very intense experience of one thing, but my, the partner in that, whether it's a friend or my child or my husband is having a totally different experience mm -hmm. of the same thing. And you just right. see that so clearly in this section. Um, the other thing that struck me was the contrast between this very complicated wooing, which we'll start talking about in a second, and what would, what happened before with Tess when she became a maiden no more. That was actually pretty quick. There was Alec. Mm. He was very attracted to her. And then he took what he wanted. And then, then that was mm -hmm. it. It was a pretty short amount mm -hmm. of time. So mm. the concentrated attention here seems very contrasting to that short, shorter experience. Um, and I'm wondering maybe if it has to do with the depth versus the superficiality of the men involved, or if there's something mm. more to it, what do you mm. think? No, that's a great question. And I think that can kind of um, get us to the beginning of, of this phase, the fourth, because what we have here is, especially in these 19th century novels, we and even in this one, we tend to think about the plight of the woman, the plight of Tess and, and how difficult marriage is for her and courtship and all the social expectations around it and the demands and needs and anxieties. But we have what Hardy presents here is that Angel as the man who is doing the wooing also has to go home and talk to his parents and get their input, get their advice and, and worry about them. And we tend generally to think or spend less time thinking about how men have to navigate hmm. these decisions. And Hardy gives us a really good picture of a young man who, you know, who departs from, you know, what his family expects of him yet still loves and respects them and has to navigate all of that in choosing, you know, choosing a wife. Um, and it's hard for him. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the 
explorations of this novel is Victorian society. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about that in our conversations on the podcast, uh, but we've talked about it mostly in connection with rigid double standards relating to men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and But there's more to it, isn't there, with what Hardy's doing, at least in this section about the exploration of Victorian society. What do you see in this section related to that? Well, we've, you know, we've been, we've talked a little bit before about Angel's character, who he is, what he's doing. And this is where kind of the rubber meets the road because he is someone who is supposed to go and get an education at university to prepare him for the church. We find out um, in great detail in, um, in chapter 25, when, when more about his father, old Mr. Clare um, is, is um, disclosed to us that he's not just a a clergyman. He is a a clergyman within the church of England, um, but he is uh, within the evangelical tradition within the church of England. Um, And so so that complicates things in, in ways that will play out later um, because it places Mr. Clare in a more, even more conservative tradition than would be the typical Anglican clergyman. Um, and yet he is traditional enough um, to care and his and his, along with his wife kind of that that his son gets a suitable marriage partner you know this isn't they don't want him to just marry for love um as already some novels are are demonstrating and showing in the 19th century um but they want someone who will be who would will fit his social station and that's still something that angel is kind of grappling with with his parents because he wants to be a farmer uh, a gentleman farmer and so he wants someone who can um work a farm rather than uh someone like mercy chant who we learn is the one intended for angel by his parents right so that breaks up brings up a new name and a new character mercy chant tell us about about her What's the deal with Mercy Chant and her name? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, of course, we have to start with her name. Right. Hardy is, you know, he is a little either, on the nose here. <laughs> a little on the nose. Exactly. Exactly. So we have, you know, uh, we have a name that is associated both with Christian theology and also with church tradition. Um, and it's a name that sounds musical and sounds pretty. Um, and there's a regularity and, to chant, right? An expected right. kind of settled yes. way it goes. That yeah. Go with the flow, go with what's expected. And so... So, so yes, we, this is, this complicates things for Angel and for the plot that we find out that, you know, his parents have been expecting him to marry this, you know, um, neighborhood girl who is um, connected to them and to the church and uh, meets all their expectations and is not uh, someone like, you know, uh, a milkmaid named Tess Derbyfield. Right. Yes. And Angel's response is to try to convince his parents. He brings forth arguments that um, I, I really, I really find it endearing the description of how he tries to convince his parents um, towards Tess. Um, the, the, um, the text uses the word specious, which you define in the, in the footnotes here at the bottom. And I, that he just wants it, right? He doesn't have 
compelling, logical, intellectual, social arguments. He just loves this girl and mm-hmm. he's trying to kind of grope around and find these reasons why she is, she's a, a, a more appropriate wife, but really it's just his heart longs right. for this. Um, and his parents are, I mean, just seem like lovely people, like, Mm -hmm. like baby boomers, (laughs) (laughs) you know, kind of the way that he, that he talks to his parents uh, and thinks about his parents and is endeared towards them and loves them and respects them. And yet does not care about a word they say, right? Like in terms of, he cares about their opinion because of his great affection for them, but he doesn't seem swayed by their you know, force of character Mm. or, um, or way of life. Like he seems to have kind of an amiable, loving affection and respect for them, but not in the sense that he wants to imitate them and be like them. Right. Do you think that's true? That's kind of, no, no, I I think that's true. And and I do think, you know, part of what Hardy is doing here, which, which is what he always does so well is he gives us characters that are believable and realistic, but he's also, they are characters who kind of represent the the problems or the society that Hardy's writing about. And one of my favorite passages um, in this part about about angel sort of negotiating with his parents about his future wife is in chapter 26 and in my volume on page 20 289 it is uh his father who says this when when um at the bottom of 289 when angel says what kind of wife do you think would be best for me as a thrifty hard-working farmer um and his answer is a truly Christian woman who will be a help and a comfort to your to you in your goings out and your comings in Beyond that, it really matters little. Such a one can be found. So <laughs> and then he goes on to suggest Mercy Chant. But like it, it, this is the this is how Hardy sees, and I think it's accurate. He sees marriage as understood by Victorian culture, like Christian, uh, a comfort and aid to you. And other than that, it doesn't really matter very much. Like there is no that's that's it. Um, and. You could, it's easy to find anyone like that, basically. Yeah, right. you can find somebody like that. On the next page, on page 290, when he's he says, uh, Angel says to his father, mercy is good and devout, I know, but father, don't you think that a young woman equally pure and virtuous is Miss Chant, but one who in place of that lady's ecclesiastical accomplishments <laughs> understands the duties of farm life as well as a farmer himself would suit me infinitely better. And I love this next sentence so much. His father persisted in his conviction that a knowledge of a farmer's wife's duties came second to a Pauline view of humanity. <laughs> Which again is my, my, I was kind of, I don't know about you. I was like a little bit raised like this with like parents with kind of that same, it just, and maybe it's like a parent's anxiety for the next generation, right? Just like in, in a troubled world, full of free thinkers and dangers to orthodoxy and virtue find someone who shares your convictions because you can figure mm-hmm. everything else out mm-hmm. right, um, right find someone you can unite with in faith and that was very much how i was raised too. just find a good christian man who will and and like that's the thing you're looking for that's numero uno and 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 clearly Angel's parents still aren't entirely sold on, you know, his plan to be a farmer. Right. So I'm, th- I'm sure they're thinking like, well, maybe he'll outgrow this. And, you know, so we want him to have a wife that's suitable for when he gets over this 
youthful fancy. Right. She'll be a good, a good influence on him and kind of bring him back into the fold. And, um, they just seem, it just seems to me so much like, and maybe this is true in every generation. It just seems to me so much like baby boomers and millennials here, like the free thinking Mm -hmm. young millennials. Like, I just want to be happy. And then the, you have the traditional baby boomer who's, you know, just kind of like save your money and go go good college and get a good job. And it's like, no, I want to be happy and travel in Switzerland and marry the love of my life. You know? So, um, so there's the man again, maybe that's a similar, maybe that's just the millennials would grow up to be in the same way. Right. But it does have that very relatable conflict between generations. That's not really a conflict in the sense that it causes any trauma, but just kind of that endearing eye rolling from mm-hmm. one generation to the next mm-hmm. between them. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And, it, and it's also, it's, it's generational, but there's also a class issue here too, right? Mm-hmm. Because her Angel's parents want him to marry someone within his social class and a, a milkmaid, a dairymaid is not uh, within his his class by birth are, and even, even if he chooses the vocation of, of farming. And so they do say, and again, this is a theme that's, that's been important will become more important. Um, but on 291, um, uh, let's see, who is it that says this? Um, I don't know if it's his mother or father, but, um, says mercy chant is of a very, very good, good family. family, right? So fam good. Being of a good family is important. Um, and Angel says, Pooh, what's the advantage of that mother? Said Angel quickly. How is family to avail the wife of a man who has to rough it as I have and shall have to do? Now, again, without giving any spoilers, okay, I do want to say or point out that this passage, Angel's response to his mother's appeal to family will become important later on. Hmm. Um, you mentioned a few minutes ago that one thing Hardy does well is he has very human characters, very relatable, and who are fully and wholly themselves, and yet also represent something within a society. So if we're looking at Mr. and Mrs. Claire, what is it that they are representative of that Hardy wants us to see and not miss? Yeah, I, I think that they represent, um, you know, a uh, a, a traditional, but again, evangelical Christian family that is rooted in sort of tradition and, and even just received notions. I mean, some of the things that they say are just hardly, you know, they're, they're certainly not original, even going back to like, oh, just someone who can, will be of help and a comfort to you and your goings in and comings out. I mean, if we could have a dollar for anyone who said that about looking for a wife, I mean, it's not an original or thoughtful right. statement. It's just something that's assumed. Um, and that's a lot of what Victorian or any culture really is. It, we just assume things based on what's been told to us and that his parents are just sort of parroting the values of the age, hmm. um, which is which is what most of us do. Right. But not Angel, right? Angel is Ooh. something different, something new. Right. So Angel is a very human character that we're getting to know very well Mm -hmm. in this section, Mm -hmm. not just because he loves Tess, but we're getting to know him as a person here. And so what is it that he represents that Hardy is saying, look at this within Victorian society? Mm. I mean, he represents someone who is 
going to be kind of a self-made man, not in a, in a reverse way. Like we often think of, especially in the 18th and the early 19th century characters, well, characters and real people were concerned with rising socially and economically. Like they wanted to improve their status and their class. And Angel is someone who is purposely, um, you know, at least in the minds of, of his parents and other people, like stepping down by becoming a farmer. Um, and so he's rejecting um, the tradition he was born into, the religious tradition. We've already seen that he has rejected that and the econo- you know, sort of socioeconomic class that he's born into. Um, and he's also rejecting sort of the wife that has been assumed for him by his family and his upbringing, um, which is, you know, for the Victorian age is, 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 pretty progressive, pretty, um, you know, I wouldn't say radical. I mean, there, there were other kinds of radicals that already were in and around, um, uh, this time period, but Angel is, sees himself as kind of a progressive radical, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. And would this have been within its time? Would, thinking thinking of within the literary kind of tradition at the time is hardy doing anything radical with angel as a hero or is this a pretty typical kind of hero we might expect from a victorian novel i mean i think that uh in in because most of the novels of the victorian age do um what I just talked about kind of show a a hero trying to rise economically and socially Um, Hardy, you know, writing at the end of the Victorian age, he's kind of demonstrating or portraying um, not so much the peak, but the decline of these, these ideals that have, you know, I mean, if, if we see, you know, if we, the Victorian age is, you know, is basically a century long and, and, and the beginning we saw like the abolition of the slave trade. We saw lots of social reforms brought in particular by the evangelicals in child welfare and, um, uh, and, and labor in general, um, social improvement, social reforms, reforms in the justice system. You know, we think, we think about Dickens and all the he addresses and that need in needing of, of great reform in his society middle part of the Victorian age was all about improvement and progress. And in Angel, we have a character who is rejecting some of what his society would generally have seen as progress and improvement. Um, he's rejecting in the formal education. He's rejecting kind of um, the church position he was expected to have um, and wants to go back to living on the land and farming. And again, today we think of farming in a kind of a romantic way, Wendell Berry and, and all that. But um, in Hardy's time, you know, choosing to be a farmer would have been a little bit um, strange. Hmm. Yes. So not only is what I think I hear you saying is not only is Tess, excuse me, is Hardy giving us a, a, a subversive heroine, but also a subversive hero mm. within this novel. Is that fair to say or is that going too far? Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, I think that is what what we can say. And again, not, subver- you know, Angel is not subversive enough to, you know, he's not like Percy Bysshe Shelley, right? He's not, right, you know, right. uh, you know, rejecting his fan. He's doing this in a, in a, in as respectful and um, friendly a way as he can, trying to make his way apart from his family without doing it in a way that's utterly radical or subversive. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I keep coming back to the word progressive. I think that's the word that fits because 
he's trying to be progressive in his theology and his uh, philosophy and his worldview and his lifestyle. Um, but it, he's not making a radical break from his family and their tradition. He, he wants, he still wants to go. He still wants his parents blessings right. on, you know, the marriage partner that he wants to choose. Well, so he's Victorian seems, enough. I, right. And I, I keep seeing in this section, I was struck by the amount of talk about his moral center. It kept, I kept noticing how much they're talking about how much he, although he's choosing these progressive ideas religiously, he really wants, he really insists himself and his family um, keep drawing attention to the fact that he, he still believes he still has these really strong moral convictions that he, mm -hmm. that are grounded in Christianity and the evangelical tradition, but he can't in good conscience fully accept the dogma of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's striving for a coherent worldview mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, someone else who wouldn't, um, in, in other, other novels or in this one, I mean, he, he, he is striving to, to have something that holds together. Right. So when we say free thinking, he calls himself free thinking when mm -hmm. we say are progressive, we're not talking about nihilism. This isn't a Russian right, novel, right. right? Like this right. is a, <laughs> right. this is a good Victorian. He is, mm -hmm. he is still firmly embedded within his generation, within yes. his tradition, within his society. He's trying to, as you said, I really like what you said, striving to, to cultivate a cohesive worldview and live by that in a moral right. way in the world. Right. Right. So with that said, let's talk a little bit about this complicated wooing, this courtship that goes on between Angel and Tess. It doesn't go according to Angel's expectations. Mm -hmm. Tess tells him, you keep, I mean, he pops the question like right away, <laughs> you know, <laughs> will you marry me? She's <laughs> She's taken aback and says no, and and thus kind of begins this complicated back and forth between the two. Um, and what's like what's going on with Angel here, and what's going on with Tess? Let's mm. start with Angel. What do you think? Like, what is he experiencing in this complicated courtship? Well, again, I, I will just keep talking about how ingenious Hardy is because I think that what we have here is we have Angel sort of assuming that Tess is being shy and coy the way a woman is supposed to be. And in the same way, um, although more it is more drawn out here, but in the same way that Alec hmm. had just assumed that Tess was playing hard to get, but doesn't really mean it, just like most of the women that he had already in, encountered in his life, right? And so, um, so that's i think what what angel is is assuming um so i want to read a little section and ask you a question about hardy here okay on page 307 at the top of uh, the top of the page the beginning of chapter 28 mm -hmm. um <laughs> he says her refusal, though unexpected, now this is the narrator talking, not right. Angel. Her refusal, though unexpected, did not permanently daunt Claire. His experience of women was great enough for him to be aware that the negative often meant nothing more than the preface to the affirmative. And it was little enough for him not to know that in the manner of the present negative, there lay a great expectation to the dallyings of coyness. Mm. 
that she had already permitted him to make love to her, meaning just flirt and, and say kind of, we're not, not talking about how we say make love. Right. Right. Um, that he had already did I, permitted. I, did yes. I miss defining that or was it earlier? No, you did. You I, defined I that. Okay. 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 You okay. said it on the podcast and in the okay, novel. Here, I just okay. want to keep drawing attention to it <laughs> right, because right. that's really important I, that we don't yeah. misinterpret that. <laughs> <laughs> Very important. <Yes. laughs> but she had already permitted him to make love to her. He read as an additional assurance, not mm-hmm. fully. Is it trowing? How do you say that, Karen? Yes, I think it's yeah. trowing. Trowing yeah. that in the fields and pastures to sigh gratis is by no means deemed waste. Okay, and then he kind of goes on from there. But is this like this is very cringy to modern women, mm-hmm. right? We read this as like ew. Is that what Hardy wants us to feel and to how to respond? Like, what is meant by this kind of language speaking of angels' pursuit? of Tess in this, are we being, are we too modern and being creeped out by this? Um, or is that what Hardy's going for? Hmm. So I think, you know, I think here, you know, Hardy is engaging in, in, um, free and direct discourse. So he's giving, even though he's, it's the narrator, he is giving us kind of, um, angels perspective angels, just assuming this is coyness and, and that she's already given permission because they, he's, she's allowed him to woo her. Um, but I, I don't, I don't think Hardy would is asking us to say ew, but I think he's asking us to critique this very real problem. Hmm. Um, And I don't think that we're at a place yet where every woman says ew, Mm -hmm. you know, right. Right. So, so I do think that um, Hardy is critiquing this coyness, which, you know, there's, there's a double various um, kinds of doubleness that Hardy is is critiquing the sexual double standard, but even this kind of um, the the way that society teaches women to do this to be to be coy and um, and not say what they want or think. Um, so I think he's asking us to just to really um, interrogate this problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which you know, which I think still is a problem. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's. In reading, in reading that, especially down the, the first words he says to her after that paragraph, Tess, why did you say mm-hmm. no in such a positive way? And mm-hmm. she's, and she responds, don't ask me. I told mm-hmm. you why partly, I mean, you know, and she, mm-hmm. she doesn't know how to tell him mm-hmm. what she's been through. Mm-hmm. She has no, no rule book for mm-hmm. this, no mother mm-hmm. to guide her, no help. Like she's, she's stuck. Um, and so she's trying to do the best she can. So she's not completely honest with him. Mm-hmm. And it seems that he can sense that because he can tell she has feelings for him, but there, there is a much deeper understanding, although we still do have, as you're pointing out, plenty of um, rewards for passivity and women in our culture. <laughs> um, but we also have a much deeper understanding of, you know, no means no. Like she said, no. Mm-hmm. She doesn't well, actually it, owe you an explanation for that. Like in a very modern way, <laughs> like this is so creepy, but seems like we're maybe supposed to see as a little bit romantic. I don't know. Well, what I see, especially as this exchange continues, is these two are speaking two different languages. Yes. So 
when she says um, just, you know, below where we, were, where we were reading, she says, don't ask me. I told you why. Partly now she's she's she is honest to a fault, right? Yes. Because she doesn't even say I told you. she's not being coy. She's saying, well, I told you partly she's she's even being honest in saying, well, I didn't tell you everything like, right. She's just saying I, I didn't tell you everything. Um, and then she says, when she says, I am not good enough, not worthy enough, she means because she's not a virgin, which mm-hmm. she can't bring herself to tell him, because how do you as a Victorian woman say that to some anyone? Um, she could hardly even tell her mother. Um, and he says, how not fine lady enough? So he's talking about social class. So they don't know what they don't even know they're not only speaking a different language and talking about different things they don't even know that they're talking about different things right right and so she is having this experience that of fear and trembling because she does love him and want to be his wife mm-hmm. but this terrible thing has happened mm-hmm. to her personally and this terrible breach of social credit has been, I mean, she's, I mean, she, she, she thinks she's to use the, the, the modern day term. She believes she's damaged damaged goods. And because she loves him so much, she doesn't want him to have damaged goods. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 And, and he is thinking, of course, he's trying to fill in the gaps. Right. Mm -hmm, And I don't, I don't see him here trying, even though that kind of is cringy to me, like I said, off-putting to me, the idea of like, well, women just say no when they mean yes all the time. (laughs) So um, we actually, I really don't, if I'm saying no, I really mean no, (laughs) but that's, I am a modern woman. I am not a Victorian Mm -hmm. woman. And as a Victorian woman, I am, I, I, I look at, I look at myself and my desire to please and to rise to standards above me. And I would have been, so I'm not better than this. I just happen to be born in a different generation. Right. Right. Um, but that is off-putting to me. However, I don't think he, I don't see him as like trying to be a jerk and push her the way Alec mm-hmm. was. He, and he's, he's trying to fill in the gaps and what is the hesitation? Well, it must be the social it must be the right. social. So he's answering right. a question. He's speaking to, he's trying to figure out what the question behind the question is, what the mm-hmm. reason behind the refusal is, but he's speaking, like you said, a completely different language and mm-hmm. she doesn't necessarily have any way to make him understand. He can't even imagine right. what the real answer is. Right. It's beyond his ability to. Right. Right. So I'm curious then I'm going to read another quote and get your thoughts on this. Cause this was one I kind of had genuinely kind of scratched my head over on page 293, a little bit earlier in the text when he's, this is, this is in um, kind of when the family drama is going on, but when he's trying to talk to his parents about her, um, the paragraph is, this is chapter 26 just a couple pages in and the paragraph begins with, he observed, he observed his own inconsistencies in dwelling upon accidents in Tess's life as if they were vital features. It was for herself that he loved Tess, her soul, her heart, 
her substance, not for her skill in the dairy, her aptness as his scholar, and certainly not for her simple formal faith professions. Her unsophisticated open-air existence required no varnish of conventionality to make it palatable to him. He held that education had, and as yet but little affected the beats of emotion and impulse on which domestic happiness depends. And he kind of goes on from there. He says, I love her for herself, not for what she offers me socially. Right. But again, is this, is this true, Karen? Does he love her for herself? He's offering a distinction here. I love her for herself, Mm -hmm. not for this. Mm -hmm. And again, we're not talking about spoilers. Mm -hmm. I love her for herself, not for this. Right. Right. But so so what he's comparing it to is not even on the radar for her. Right. I mean, the, the conversation we just looked at in the, you know, a few minutes ago demonstrates that he doesn't know who she is. Right. Right. Because he doesn't even understand. He doesn't know what her, he cannot imagine any objection, uh, from her to marrying him other than the one that he imagines it to be, which is social class. So he has no idea who Tess is. Right. Yes. So how can he actually love her for who she is? Right. Now, are we, does Hardy want us, are there red flags here? Does Hardy want us to see this or does he want us to have some hesitation in approaching Angel and Tess here? Or does he kind of, does he want us to be wholeheartedly for them and see him as this virtuous man, this answer to her problems, he's going to swoop in and rescue her? Or is he embedding some of these things purposefully to get our radar up? That's a good question because, you know, knowing all that I know that happens, I mean, I'm thinking of myself reading this for the first time. I mean, I, I, he certainly wants us to understand the way that Angel understands himself, Right. Um, whether or not, you know, I, I would just love to hear from those who are reading this for the first time, if they're seeing red flags or if this just feels like, yeah, this is who Angel is. I, I mean, I think my my sense that I, you know, I, I think I mentioned before, I can't remember the first time I read this novel. I just remember how I felt through the whole thing. <laughs> um, and. I think, you know, and I was, I was young. I was probably in high school when I read it for the first time. Um, and I think that I believed Angel's perspective throughout all this. Like, like, I think that's, I, I mean, I, I really reading it the first time through, I thought Angel really was an angel. Like he really is like a knight in shining armor. Um, he's a, a dream come true. Um, and uh, so me reading this the first time as a naive reader, I would just be like, yes, he loves her for herself. Right. Um, yeah, I'm one of the things I was struggling through as I read this section was because I kept seeing red flags, but I was asking myself, is this because A, I know it's coming, mm-hmm. or B, because I am a modern? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and see relationships and define romantic relationships, very right. healthy romantic relationships very differently than they would have done in the Victorian era. Um, and so I've just been, just been thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I'm even more interested in that second interpretation and if your thoughts on whether or not Hardy is putting these things in there for us to see or whether we're just interpreting them through different mm-hmm. eyes because of our time. I mean, I do think that Hardy is pretty consistent in presenting Angel 
you know, in, with his name and with everything else as an idealist, like a capital I idealist. Um, and so if we come into this knowing anything about Hardy not being an idealist, um, and I think the novel, you know, just going back to the living on a blighted star, um, we know he's not an idealist. So I, I think that there, I think Hardy um, gives for the knowledgeable alert reader these kinds of hints or red flags. Yet at the same time, if, if, we're, if we're naive, as I was when I first read it, we, we might not see them. Right. Well, what changes Tessa's mind? You know, what what moves her from resistant uh, to, um, you know, willing to marry him? What is it that breaks down this resistance in her? Um, I mean, I just feel like, I mean, maybe, maybe you see something that I don't, I just feel like she has been broken down. You know, she just, he just keeps asking and she gets um, less and less able to resist or, or even provide an answer other than the real, you know, the, you know, she has a real answer that she cannot um, bring herself to give. And so I think she just sort of, her resistance breaks down. Right. So, which is why it's so long as we talked about before. Right. I mean, that's what's happening. (laughs) Right. I do. I see that. I think that that's right. I'm wondering also, uh, we talked a lot about what's going on with Angel um, and some about what's going on with Tess, but she goes through a bit of a transformation here from resistance um, to willing to marry him. Is this her innate passivity rearing its ugly head or is this true love uh, or, or an overlapping of both? What, what is this in her that's happening right now? Are we, is this a positive acceptance of potential healing or is this, I I guess I'll just marry him, but she does. We we know she does truly love him. Right. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we interpret this? I mean, I, I think it, I think she has just broken down. I, I think she is, it's her passivity, right? She, she had, but it's, but it's understand, I mean, but it's understandable. So it's not just, um, it's not weakness. It's just, um, she, yeah. Uh, um, but I, but I do think it is her passivity. Mm-hmm. Is Hardy painting her as um, virtuous or tragic in this section? Mm. Do you think there was a rally, right? Mm -hmm. Is, is there still a rally or is there a decay here? It's, she is, we know what she's going through, but to me, it feels complicated in interpreting it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I do think I, I think there already is a tragic note here because she has, you know, she says that she had, I don't know if she says it or the narrator says that she's broken her vow um, to. Oh, yeah. She says on page 330 and this on chapter 30, um, when she's crying, I cry because I have broken down in my vow. I said I would die unmarried. So I think that is supposed to be a kind of tragic note. Um, we know why she made that vow. Angel doesn't. And there's one other, you know, kind of uh, 
plot point, but also an element of tragedy that um, I actually, I, I was thinking it was a spoiler when I mentioned it earlier, but it is in the reading for um, this part. It's, it's in chapter 30 again on page 327. Um, so maybe midway through the chapter, actually 330, 326 and 327, sorry. Um, but this is the part where um, Angel and Tess discuss her lineage, her family lineage. Um, when she says, um, this is at the bottom of 327, she says, I, I am not a Derby field, but a Derberville, a descendant of the same family as those that owned the old house we passed. And we are all gone to nothing. See, that's the decline that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And he says, a Derberville indeed. And is that all the trouble, dear Tess? Yes, she answered faintly. Well, why should I love you less after knowing this? And she says, I was told by the dairyman that you hated old families. He laughed. Well, it is true in one sense. I do hate the arist aristocratic principle of blood before everything and do think that as reasoners, the only pedigrees we ought to respect are those spiritual ones of the wise and virtuous without regard to corporal paternity. But I'm extremely interested in this news. You can have no idea how interested I am. Are you not interested yourself in being one of that well-known line? This is the first really clear cut instance of Angel's own hypocrisy mm -hmm. because he has insisted all along to his parents, to the dairyman, to himself, that he does not care about family lineage and family paternity. Um, but all of a sudden, he's so excited he, about in learning that Tess comes from an ancient aristocratic line. He can hardly contain himself. He's like practically mm -hmm. foaming at the mouth. Um, and this, to me, is the first big red flag about Angel. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is a very significant conversation. Um, it's emotional because Tess is trying to tell him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She can't get it out. This thing about the Durbervilles comes out, mm -hmm. which, as you know, as we talked many times about, titles are always important. And so the whole title of the book is Tests of the Durbervilles. Mm -hmm. So clearly this Durberville <laughs> thing's kind of important. Important, right. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. As you said, it's the first inclination that we have of his hypocrisy. And then also she bursts into these sobs on page 330. She had no sooner said it, which is yes to his proposal. Mm -hmm. Then she burst into a dry, hard sobbing, so violent that it seemed to rend her. Tess was not mm -hmm. a hysterical girl by any means. And he was surprised. Why is she, why is she sobbing like this, Karen? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it goes back to page 328 where we where we left off um when they have this con she tells about being a derberville and he's so excited and then it says uh, the next to last paragraph in 328 she had not he thinks that's the secret that was the thing holding her back oh well she doesn't want to marry me because she comes from noble lineage and i've been saying all along i don't She's like old so family is right, right. <laughs> And he's like, oh, but it's no problem. Actually, I really do like noble families. Ha ha. Um, and, and so <laughs> he thinks that's her secret. And then the narrator says she had not told. At the last moment, her courage had failed her. She feared his blame for not telling him sooner. And her instinct of self-preservation was stronger than her candor. So she like this. She tells about her family 
And it turns into this big thing and a big misunderstanding because he thinks that's the secret. That's why that was the obstacle and that she told the secret. And she's like, that wasn't it at all. And she's carrying this weight that now she's fooled him unintentionally even more because he thinks this was the secret. It's not the secret. And she just can't bring herself to tell him what it really is. And so I think that's why she breaks into these violent sobs. Right. And then he says here at the bottom of 330. Now, my dear Tess, if I did not know that you are very much excited and very inexperienced. There you go. <laughs> of course I should, she is. <laughs> I should say that remark was not very complimentary. How came you to wish that if you care for me? Do you care for me? I wish you would prove it in some way. She's just said she's going to marry him. <laughs> How can I prove it more than I have done? She cried in a distraction of tenderness. Will this prove it more? She clasped his neck and for the first time, Claire learned what an impassioned woman's kisses were like upon the lips of one whom she loved with all her heart and soul as Tess loved him. There, now do you believe? She asked, flushed and wiping her eyes. I was so moved by this section. And I confess what I wanted to do is crawl into the novel and punch him right in the face. But I don't know if that's how I'm supposed to want what I'm supposed to want. But, and I don't know how much is because of how the novel goes or how much is just, again, my modern sensibilities of, which I think are true. I think are right sensibilities that a man does not get to ask a woman to prove, physically prove love for him like this. Like, it's just hard for me not to see him through the eyes of my own generation. And I'm a big preacher of putting those things aside and reading a novel, but I'm finding it hard to do. So this is my confession mm -hmm. that I'm finding it hard to do in this particular section, this wooing section, which mm -hmm. I want to read it through Victorian eyes, but instead I'm reading it through middle-aged woman of the 2000s with a 13-year-old daughter's eyes. <laughs> mm. No, that's interesting because I never took it when he says, I wish you would prove it in some way. I don't see him asking for proof, like, right, you know, in a physical right. way. Right? Let's go to bed right now. Right, right, right. Like he just really, he just, because he doesn't understand her, what her hesitancy is, he's really confused. Like, huh. I don't blame him for being confused. Like he doesn't right. know what the problem is. And, and he wants, you know, he does love her and that 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 passage that you read about when she like he wasn't asking for that and she I mean it's just it just happens and it's so poignant because mm -hmm. neither one of them could have known what the narrator tells us that that's true for the first time Claire learned what an impassioned woman's kisses were like upon the lips of one whom she loved with all her heart and soul as Tess loved him this is one of the greatest love scenes in all of literature I think okay I can see that <laughs> all right I really do like this next paragraph so they drove on through the gloom forming one bundle inside the sailcloth that's a really sweet image uh the and and a bit of an objective correlative right at least right now it's them against the mm -hmm. world it's mm -hmm. the two of them huddled together mm -hmm. kind of kind of facing the 
the society with their own, with their love as their protecting, as their protector. Um, I'll read that again. So they drove on through the gloom, forming one bundle inside the sailcloth, the horse going on as he would, and the rain driving against them. She had consented. She might as well have agreed at first. The appetite for joy, which pervades all creation, that tremendous force which sways humanity to its purpose as the tide sways the helpless weed, was not to be controlled by vague lucubrations. Am I saying that right? <laughs> as far as Over I know. Over <laughs> the social rubric. And I do love that, that idea that the appetite for joy is not and ought not to be managed. Desire really can't be managed by duty, mm-hmm. right? It can only be fulfilled by love, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's the possibility that we have here. And in that, I think there's a sweetness um, and a poignancy to this mm-hmm. scene. Um, I am going to ask you, uh, your, you said you remembered how you felt when you read this mm-hmm. for the first time. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that a bit? Um, well, I mean the whole novel, um, yeah. like the sense of it. Right. And so I just know that how I felt in the next part of phase, the fourth um, and the end um, comes from how I interpreted what was going on here, you know, and and it is like I as much as these two misunderstand one another because they're coming from different worlds and different worlds of experiences, they do love each other. And in some ways, I mean, aren't, aren't any two people who love each other doing the same thing, right? Like, like they're, they're co- we, we never completely know or understand one another. Um, and we often assume or, you know, project our own values and questions on what someone else is, is struggling through. And so um, this just seems, again, this is like pretty much the middle of the novel. It's the middle, middle of the middle. Um, and it closes with that you know, that, that kiss. <laughs> right. Um, and it's just, I think Hardy sets us up for a terrible right. fall. <laughs> so I, that's my last question. We're going to close here in a couple of minutes. Um, is this, is there a time in this section or, you know, maybe in, in the next part, that you see, I kind of see it as this conversation, but we talked a bit about, um, before about how Hardy so structures his novels as to be this chain reaction towards Mm -hmm. the tragic downfall. Mm -hmm. Is, is there a turning point? Is there a point that Tess should have told him is, does he give us, does he give us a moment, you know, that that's like, this was the time Mm -hmm. that, that she could have said something, not been so passive, mm-hmm. or is the implication she actually just doesn't owe him an explanation at all? Right? Like, no, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, actually, I think it's a third thing. I think okay. that there, because we'll see in the next part, like there are various times that this she could have told him. Um, and I mean, we saw one where 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 they're discussing the the name Durbervilles, and then and like that she came so close to telling him, and so um, I mean, I think that's the the genius of it. It's not. It's I think it would be more melodrama, and there is a little melodrama later, <laughs> like you know, um, where 
like that's the that's the really missed point. But there are sev- there are several. I, I think that's part of what how the tragedy accumulates is because there, there are many points along the way where if one different one small different thing had happened, the story would turn out differently. Yeah. Well, Karen, do you have any any final thoughts or any guidance for us to be looking for in the next section? Well, I would just say, we've mentioned this a couple of times, but Hardy does so many parallels. And so um, this section opened with Angel communicating with his parents, his desires to marry Tess. And the next half of this chapter opens with Tess communicating with her parents. And so note a contrast in both are doing the same thing. Both are kind of going to their parents, um, as was expected, but very, very different dynamics um, mm-hmm. in many ways. So that would be a, a kind of parallel with contrast that I would look for. Yeah, no, that's good. All right. Well, Karen, thank you for holding down the fort oh. with me today. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Poor David. We hope he'll be better enough to join us next week. That's right. Prayers for David. And he did tell me he was on the mend, just his voice was gone. So that, and you know (laughs) what? That's the money maker when you're podcasting, (laughs) I guess. Right. Uh, Well, yes. Good wishes for David. Prayers for David. um, And thank you so much for being here Uh, to our listeners. Thank you for your support uh, over on the uh, at Close Reads HQ. Uh, If you want to become a supporter, you can find lots of great bonus content there. I just released uh, a column on my monthly column. Uh, This one was on duty and desire in Anna Karenina between uh, the three main characters of the adult triangle. Uh, And over there, I write every month on the dynamic of duty and desire in literature. There's lots of other great content book lists from from you, Karen, and and Tim and I, and David contributed summer book list if you're looking for summer reading uh, and lots of other great content over there. So uh, if you are interested in supporting the show and accessing that content, you can go to www.closereads.substack.com. We would be very grateful for your support. Um, And we're over there building community. And then of course, you can join our uh, Facebook group at Close Reads Podcast Discussion. If you're not already there, please post your questions, comments, rants, thoughts, uh, any of that. Um, and memes, yeah, I posted exactly. a great meme for the discussion yes. for the, this week. <laughs> Please. Yes. We have a lot of lighthearted fun about literature over there. Um, plus some really robust and rich discussions and we are interested in your thoughts. It's not just about us. So that's why we do that. Uh, so thank you to all of you for, for listening. Uh, and so for David Kern, who's not here for Karen Swallow Pryor and Heidi White, thanks for listening and happy reading. Thank you.